It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. I'm really happy today because I get to introduce to you Larry Dossey, who is... um, one of the most respected in his field. He wrote the book, The Healing Words, which um, I also read, I don't know, almost 15 years ago for the first time. And what's so exciting about that is that when you first wrote that book, you had all these predictions about what would happen. I think in the back of the book, you talked about predictions about what would happen in the world to come. And I would say almost all of them have come true. You know, Oprah, looking back at those predictions, Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was a pretty good prophet. Yes. uh, Because, as you say, almost all of those have proved to be true. Uh, When I made those predictions, I thought that I was probably going out on a limb uh, to the extent that I wouldn't see those come through true in my lifetime. In your lifetime. But the pace of change since uh, that book came out, which put prayer forward as something really powerful and the healing response. Yeah, healing words, the power of prayer and the practice of medicine changed the way the medical profession and I think the world looked at prayer. I'm happy to say that that's true. Yes. When you wrote this book, uh, Healing Words, did you realize that you could obviously come under attack? Did you feel that you were being a pioneer? Actually, I did come under attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, I wasn't sure if I could withstand the criticism or not, Mm -hmm. but I knew that what I had to say was right. Mm -hmm. And I had something that believers in prayer and spirituality have not had throughout history. Mm -hmm. It's that pesky little four-letter word called data. Mm -hmm. And I knew for the first time that it would be possible to use the word prayer and science in the Mm -hmm. same sentence and hopefully get away with it. And as it turned out, that proved to be true. Uh, It came as a shock to most Mm -hmm. of my colleagues to discover that there were actually what we call double-blind, randomized, controlled experiments looking at the efficacy of prayer and getting well. It came as a shock to me when I first discovered that information. And I felt that we were at a point in history where one, in order to be honest with oneself as a physician, had to take a stand. And I decided to come forward with that. It wasn't clear to me that... uh, I could survive pre- professionally doing that. But Were you afraid? I, Were you afraid? Yes. 
I, I was. And did you pray a lot? <laughs> <laughs> then and now, uh -huh. <laughs> I still do. Uh, but as it turned out, the force of the data, the force of the information spoke for itself. And to my great surprise, researchers began to come out of the closet doing uh, these uh, additional studies, which continued to show that prayer does have a healing effect when you put it to the test in the hospital and the laboratory. You know, when you and I last talked in 1994, there was only one major large human study in prayer. But since then, Oprah, we have an explosion. We've had an explosion of these kinds of studies. So that if you fast studies forward... Studies that prove through good science, you're through, saying, through, through good, good science... compelling, exotic science... That prayer works. Yes. We've got about 21 of those studies now. So we've gone from one to 21 studies. Over half of them show statistical significance showing that prayer works. It's driven the skeptics nuts because they're dedicated basically to the proposition that we know in advance that consciousness can't operate outside the brain and the body. It's okay to talk about mind-body influences, but to talk about your thoughts, your love, your compassion, operating at a distance mm -hmm. through intercessory prayer is just uh, over the top for so many critics, and still is. But the data won't go away. It's there, it's firm, and uh, it's abundant. Well, with over 50 good science experiments proving that prayer results in significant changes in a variety of living beings, wouldn't it seem to reason that by now the scientific community would uh, have difficulty, you know, uh, proving otherwise? Oh, they have a great deal of difficulty. But there are some people who are so wedded to the physicalistic yeah. conception of consciousness. That, Only what I can see. Exactly. Yeah. That uh, I think no matter how compelling the data becomes for some people, they're still going to stick to their guns and say that there must be something wrong with the studies. But the medical schools have come around, and I think that that's the place to look uh, for indication of where this is headed. If the medical schools take this on, then uh, it's not going away. That speaks volumes for the legitimacy of this whole thing about prayer. Oh, we're talking to Dr. Larry Dossie, the man who brought us the data on the, on the power of prayer 15 years ago when he wrote Healing Words, The Power of Prayer and the Practice of Medicine. Can you give a specific example for the, our audience listening who perhaps hasn't read? I'm sure there are a lot of you listening who've not read Healing Words. Uh, if any of what we're saying today resonates with you, I would advise that you get that book. That should be one of the standards in your own personal library, I think. think. Can you give us um, a specific example where you definitively proved that prayer works? One of my favorite examples has to do with infertility. Mm -hmm. uh, this study took place uh, in a fertility clinic in Seoul, Korea, uh, in women who really had difficulty getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. They were undergoing in vitro fertilization and embryo transfer in an attempt to have a baby. Uh, unknown to them, they were enrolled in one of these studies in which people were recruited to pray for half of them, but not for the other half. <clears throat> this is what we call a triple blind study, which but means strangers, strangers yes. The people doing the praying were in Canada and Australia and the United States. Uh, and uh, when they looked at the data, the outcomes, the women who received the uh, prayer from these uh, remote prayer groups had twice the successful fertility rate as the women who were not assigned prayer from these uh, distant individuals. Uh, you know, we talk about the odds against chance in these studies. There was only one chance in 1,000 that you could explain this by by saying, well, this just happened to, 
according to chance. This was just a fluke. This is one of the most careful and compelling studies that's been done, but not just in infertility. We've seen these studies now done in patients with advanced AIDS, with heart attack, uh, and uh, in several other illnesses as well. And how does it exactly work, Larry? (laughs) How does it exactly work? Is it like prayer creates its own vibration, and that vibration or energy changes, change, has its own frequency level, and then changes the vibration of whatever you're praying for? Well, the short answer is no one knows. Okay. Uh, That's a hypothesis. Uh, I think uh, that we just ought to say out front that this is still very much a mystery. Uh, I don't feel uncomfortable saying that we don't know how it works, because in the history of medicine, we often know that something does work before we have a clue about how it does. You can make a long list of those from right. aspirin, right. penicillin, and oh, and so on. And that, that's where we stand with prayer now. There are a lot of hypotheses that are being advanced by world-class scholars about how it may work. My favorite comes out of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. It has to do with something called entanglement. Uh, and uh, what you have in this theory is the uh, idea that even though uh, individuals can be far apart, they can still behave as if they're a single entity. Whereas you change one, the other one changes instantly and, and to the same degree. We draw on analogies from what happens in the subatomic domain here. Mm-hmm. And if it happens with uh, distant electrons or other particles, the thinking is that this may have a corollary uh, where humans are far apart. It gives us something, uh, a metaphor to hang our hat on about how these distant changes may occur when one person has a compassionate, loving thought and the other person at a distance changes in correlation with that person's healing intention, thought, or prayer. And doesn't matter how far apart they are. I'm telling you that it doesn't matter. And this has been proved extensively. You know, one of the things that we draw from these experiments is that prayer works as well from the other side of the earth as it does at the bedside. There's even evidence now that it may work uh, in retrospect that you can pray later and affect the outcome of a person's uh, physical condition, even though you suppose that that has already happened. Yeah. Well, how do you counsel your patients who are suffering from an illness and praying for wellness and with seemingly no success? Well, I uh, admit uh, up front that these studies are statistical and there's no guarantee in any case that when you pray for someone, you're automatically going to see mm-hmm. uh, an improvement as a result of the prayer. But if you lump all of the people together, all the cases, and look at it statistically, you can show that, sure enough, for the majority of people, there is an effect. Uh, I think we ought to... So are you better off with more people praying for you? It's been... have, have you statistically found that the more people that pray for you, the better off you are? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're not, you don't get 10 times the effect from 10 people praying as opposed to one. You do not. No, you don't. If I had to select one quality which overrides the number of people praying or even how long they pray, it would be the intensity and the genuineness and the authenticity of love that the praying person has. Mm-hmm. Over and over we see that again in he- healing words. Yeah. I- I- exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... Uh, we have intimation. It's not the amount, it's the quality it's the of the quality one. quality and genuineness and sincerity. Yeah. You know, in real life, we say we pray for our loved ones, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That means we pray unconditionally. 
we will pray for them no matter what. Why? Because we care for them. And if you talk to healers, Oprah, they'll tell you this. They'll say, it's not the words you use or how long you pray. You've just got to feel it in your heart. And over and over again, this issue of depth and sincerity and love and compassion rise to the top. Yeah, there's something about it, the quality of prayer, that I have found for myself, uh, Larry, that there's a praying where you are praying in fear. And I know many of you are listening. You've prayed the prayer. You've prayed. You're, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying. But while you're praying, you're afraid already that the prayer isn't going to be answered. Yeah. You're afraid already the energy of the prayer is coming from a fearful place. Right. I have found that when you can surrender yourself in prayer, you know, surrender while making the request, but surrender to a will greater than your own, that there is a greater sense of alignment and peace even in the prayer. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it has more zip and more pizzazz. Yeah. There's <laughs> power. Uh, and you can feel that. Yeah. And you know, it's I not put, just give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need. Please, please, please. I just really don't like give me prayers. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell you, you know, when I first started writing about this, the role of prayer, I decided that I needed, I had to put this to use in my own uh, practice of internal medicine. And so I, uh, invented my own prayer ritual where mm -hmm. I would go into my office earlier every morning and pray for the patients I was about to make around zone in the hospital and who would be coming to my office that day. And never once over many years did I ever pray for anything specific, like may the heart attack go away mm -hmm. or I want this cancer to be healed. I simply adopted a may thy will be done approach. Mm -hmm. And I think this captures the surrender aspect that mm -hmm. you just mentioned, mm -hmm. where you appeal to a higher wisdom greater than your own. Uh, as, a, as an introvert, mm -hmm. an unreconstructed introvert, I have real trouble telling the world what to do. Mm -hmm. I had rather rely on a higher wisdom right. when I pray for people. Right. May the best outcome prevail in this situation. Yes. May thy will be done. Uh, and I felt really comfortable about that. Mine is direct my footsteps. Yes. Yes. I love it. Yes. Yeah, that's great. But thy will be done is pretty good, too. <laughs> <laughs> it stood the test of time. I yes. Thomas's presents Tackling Traffic with Tom. Good morrow. Tis your reminder to savour the morning with Thomas's breakfast. And while you may not be able to control what occurs on your commute, like your horse and buggy popping a wheel and axle on the way to the schoolhouse, you can control what you put atop your soft but crunchy bagel and the toastiness of your English muffin. So do take the time to savour the morning with Thomas's. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. You admit that uh, people pray ill will on others. Yeah. Does it work when well, you pray ill will on others? That doesn't, that's not in alignment with that which is pure and genuine, is it? No, I think uh, it certainly isn't. Uh, the reason I made an issue of this thing about toxic prayer or negative prayer right. 
was a Gallup survey in 1993 which asked Americans how they pray. And in this survey, 5% of Americans said that they pray occasionally for harm for other people. Wow. If you do the numbers, that's uh, over 10, 12 million people out there praying to harm other people. And the question better be, does that stuff work? Yes. You can't test it in people because it's illegal to do a study that looks to harm people. Right. So that that's, can't be done. But what ha- researchers have done is to, in the laboratory, explore whether or not people can have negative intentions and, and thoughts toward things like bacteria or plants or even animals. Isn't that that water experiment where they had froze the water and looked at the water and played rock music, different forms of music, placed it in? in it's a... related. Mm-hmm. But what uh, most of these studies look at is whether or not you can increase the rate of bacterial growth in test tubes or harm them. You can reverse your healthy thoughts and try to harm the bacteria. And sure enough, people can work it either way. There are many of these studies on the books showing that people can influence living systems in a positive, healthful way or a negative way. I think that these studies demonstrate that we should take this idea of negative thoughts and intentions quite seriously. Really? You know, most cultures I would cultures think that do. you would only harm yourself doing that. I would think that you, the, that, 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 that's living in the space where you talk about, that's the space of unforgiveness. Yes. Being unforgiving would only harm you because the other person's going on with their lives and you don't have any power over them. I think you hit the nail on the head. And in many shamanic cultures, pre-modern cultures, there is a principle that you better be careful if you pray for harm for other people yes. through curses, hexes, or spells, or something like that because of what's been called the boomerang effect. Right. This can come back and harm you and leave the other person unscathed. Mm-hmm. And so in folk cultures, this is accepted that this does rebound to the person occasionally if they try to harm other people. I wanted to go to the predictions. At the beginning of this show, I was talking about how when you first wrote Healing Words, what is it 15 years ago? Yes. 15 years ago, Healing Words, the power of prayer and the practice of medicine, which really proved that prayer works and changed the way not only a lot of people in the world, but as you just explained to us, medical schools handle the issue of prayer. So now there are 90 medical schools that, that support the fact that prayer works. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to go down a list of some of the predictions. You said a new picture of human consciousness will emerge. No longer will it be considered an exclusive byproduct of the brain destined to die with the body. The recognition that there is some aspect of the human psyche that is genuinely non-local will lead to a transformation of our ideas of who we are. We will see that this non-local aspect of ourselves cannot die, for if non-local, it is infinite in space and time, and thus omnipresent and immortal by implications. You know, for me, this is the richest implication of the whole deal. Uh, I'm all for praying for people to get better, and uh, indeed they do, statistically Mm -hmm. speaking. But this is more than just another tool in our black bag as doctors, you know. The idea that we have some quality of consciousness that is non-local is the Mm -hmm. word I love, but that's just a fancy word for infinite. Uh, We have some capacity to reach out through space and time to make a difference in the world. So these studies affirm the idea of the soul, and they point like an arrow to the possibility of survival of bodily death. I think this is the most significant outcome of this whole area of investigation. You know, 
our culture has been, I think, severely damaged by this assumption that it's all over with the death of the brain and body. Yeah. Total annihilation. That's the assumption of modern biology. These studies, the healing studies, point to something different. You also say that this soul-like quality of human beings will no longer be just an assertion of religions to be accepted only through blind faith. It will be considered a legitimate implication of rational, empirical science. This is so exciting. Isn't what it? we have here is a yeah. bridge between science and theology, which for uh, generations, uh, you know, have fought each other bitterly uh, over turf battles mm -hmm. and, uh, and so on. But this uh, offers an opportunity not for a a total blending. I don't think we ought to try to homogenize science and spirituality, but at least a coming together, a shaking of hands, and uh, a, a new dialogue. And it helps us harmonize two parts of who we are, the spiritually oriented aspect of ourselves and the rational, logical part of who we are. Uh, we can be whole, uh, more whole as a result, uh, I think, of honoring these studies. And finally, you say, this understanding may lead to a transformation in the way we pray. No longer will we pray incessantly for things such as our health, but our prayers will be predominantly prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving, our proper response on realizing that the world at heart is more glorious, benevolent, and friendlier than we've recently supposed. <laughs> you know, I, this, this passage always reminds me of a statement of Einstein that mm -hmm. the most important question a scientist can ask is, is the universe friendly? Mm. And I think by affirming immortality and an eternal aspect of who we are, these studies help us give a yes answer to Einstein's famous question, is the universe friendly? Affirming immortality. Well, that just changes everything. If you believe that the world is there for, uh, to be compassionate and to support you in your journey, or you believe that it's, everything's working against you, that's the difference between succeeding and not, isn't it, Larry? Well, I think so. You know, when I first began to explore those prayer experiments, I never thought it would lead in the direction of looking at the universe in a new way. Uh, but it does because... you were it, traditional uh, medicine for the most part. Yes, I yeah. was. And I bought into this idea that, you know, the major players in medicine were drugs and surgical procedures. And... Uh, it came as a shock to me to discover what I eventually began to consider the best-kept secret in medical research. That's exactly. It said on the first book, <laughs> the best-kept secrets in medical science, prayer and heals. Who knew? Uh, I didn't. I mean, this was uh, a well-kept secret in my medical How did uh, you education. discover it? Share with our, our listeners uh, how you discovered that for yourself. Someone sent me a copy of a, uh, an outrageous study in which a cardiologist attempted to study prayer in a coronary care unit the same way you would study the effects of a new medication. You have a bunch of people with a common disease, in mm -hmm. this case, heart attack. You give half of them something and not the other half, which is the control group, and then you just compare how they do. Well, in this particular study, it wasn't a drug that was being tested. This radical cardiologist, Dr. Randolph Bird, mm -hmm. decided to use prayer as the intervention randomized, double-blind study. Doctors, nurses, and patients didn't know who was getting the stuff and who wasn't. And then he just simply looked at the, the outcomes. And the prayed-for group, not knowing they were being prayed for, did better on many clinical uh, criteria than the people in the control group. I, I was stunned. I knew and everything else was equal. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. And this was just like a dagger in my heart. I looked at this study and I said, Larry, if this study is correct, then the world just changed for you. You're not praying for your patients. And at that time, I wasn't praying for my patients. I would have prayed for them on a bed. I didn't think it was uh, worth anything. And uh, I had patients. Where were the, you with religion before then? Did you pray at all? Or was uh, it prayer just a perfunctory thing you went through? I was rebelling. Okay. I, I grew up in uh, the buckle of the Bible belt and mm-hmm. uh, in fundamentalist Christianity, Texas, yeah. Texas central yeah. Texas. And, uh, but I threw away all of that when I went to medical school. And at the time I came across this research, uh, I was certainly not uh, uh, disposed to prayer, believe me. Mm-hmm. But I knew in a heartbeat that if that study was correct in prayer, really did something therapeutic for people in the coronary care unit, I better reconsider my boycott of prayer. And I did. I spent three years looking at all the research that had ever been done in the world and was totally shocked to find it so abundant. And in that time, I began to incorporate prayer in a morning prayer ritual religiously every morning uh, because I knew that I had to in order to do justice to these in a morning findings. prayer ritual, saying a specific prayer like our father? No, it's almost comical. Uh, okay. I, I couldn't go back to those old rituals that I grew up with. Uh-huh. So I invented my own. Okay. You know, over the years, I've accumulated shamanic rattles, you know, of mm-hmm. a great variety. I have right. one of the world's greatest supplies of incense. Wow. So I would go into my office, lock the door from the inside. That's right. And Because you don't want any nurses coming uh, in and seeing uh, that. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I would you, shake you my You shaking rattles. your rattles. Exactly. Yes. Burning my incense and ritualistically praying for the best outcome for my patients. I did that until I left my practice of internal medicine. So this deeply affected me in the way I... Uh, and would you feel better or what? I felt terrific because I knew that I was uh, taking a more holistic and complete approach to therapy than by just using uh, uh, biologically and uh, physicalistically oriented uh, approaches. I thought that was it. Right. I had written other well, books If I'm going to have this, a surgeon, so. I want the one that's praying for him before he goes <laughs> in the room. Well, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. And... Then I wrote the book and I began to get letters from doctors all over the country telling me that their experiences matched mine in terms of their willingness to honor this information and to make it a part of their, uh, their daily practice. Now, knowing that uh, data exists proving the, that uh, uh, prayer has the power to heal, as you documented in Healing Words over 15 years ago, isn't it sort of, isn't it like malpractice not to practice it then? Well, you know, that was one of the predictions I made in 1993 in the book that uh, if the data continues to be uh, strong and more abundant and if prayer becomes the standard of practice in a given community and a doctor doesn't at least recommend it to his patients, that doctor could conceivably be considered guilty of malpractice. Hmm. Uh, I kind of had my tongue in my cheek when I made that prediction. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to concede and confess that it has not proved to be true. Right. And perhaps it shouldn't, because I think that the main thing doctors ought to do is to use this information in an educational sense Mm -hmm. and to inform patients of the power of prayer and then let the patient make up their mind about whether or not they want to incorporate this into their health strategy. But Dr. Larry Dossie here, let me ask ask you this. (laughs) What if those doctors that you're speaking of, um, what if they are where you were, rebelling? 
or just don't believe, um, haven't read the evidence, what if they are there and their patients, and they're also, their patients are there. If they say, pray, pray to what? Pray to whom? Mm -hmm. Well, I think many of them are in that rebellious uh, mm -hmm. stage of uh, essentially denial yeah. that this information is out there. You know, I think that's where patients need to take charge. Uh, and if they're uh, in, under the care of a physician who they think is not attuned to their spiritual needs, they need to shop it. And I've advised patients of this for years. That doesn't mean the doctor has to be of the same religion as you. Oh, absolutely not. Yes. Uh, no. Because prayer works in every religion. That's one of the great things about these yeah. studies. Yeah. They point like an arrow to religious tolerance and openness. Uh, these studies show that no particular religion has cornered the market on this prayer stuff. Mm. Uh, and I'm happy about that. That's one of the great contributions that these studies have made, I think, to human welfare. This affirmation of tolerance and openness between faiths. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. So this idea of praying every day, when you then started to not just uh, believe the study, research the study, but prove that the studies were, were correct, did that then lead you to an understanding that there was healing power in ordinary things? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But actually, uh, I began to be fascinated by the healing power of simple things uh, quite early in my life. I had an emergency appendectomy. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible experience. I never met the surgeon ahead of time. He just didn't think it was necessary. I didn't meet the anesthesiologist ahead of time. Uh, when I woke up, I was in pain. I was alone. I felt isolated, anxious, hurting like crazy. And uh, I had no idea what was found at surgery. No one had bothered to even tell me. Uh, and something simple happened. Uh, a nurse came by. And she merely held my hand and she said, don't worry, Larry, everything's going to be just fine. And it was like a switch turned in my body and brain. The pain immediately went away. So did the anxiety and fear. And I knew in a heartbeat that something had happened to me that I didn't understand. I had met a healer. At that time, healing was not even in my vocabulary. I didn't know what. Nor in the in the psychic consciousness <laughs> of the country. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. Ex that's exactly right. Yeah, but that experience of that little simple act of just touch, hand holding, was seared into my brain and my memory, and it stayed with me ever since. And I sort of developed. Do you think a, that she had some special powers, or that the power came? In the, act, in, in the actual act itself, that I, she did it. I think probably both. Mm -hmm. I think this woman was a healer. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if she uh, knew she was a healer or not, mm. but uh, uh, that's what healers do. I yes. mean, this is a classic healing I think lots of nurses moment. are drawn into this field because they are, exactly. but that's not what they call themselves. Healers, they call themselves it, nurses. I know. Yeah. And Oprah, I, I got so fired up and carried away with the power of nurses, I married me one. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> That was Boy, 30, that must have been some 30 touch. something years ago. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I love what you say um, in the uh, extraordinary uh, healing power of ordinary things. And you're right. It's about, you know, all the ordinary things like optimism and forgetting and tears and dirt and bugs. In the end, you say, when you write about optimism, it will not be weekend conferences or seminars or web-based courses or books that will teach people, will teach people how to be optimistic. Rather, it will be what we do as a nation to create the conditions in which optimism can flower. I feel so strongly about this. I do too. I think that one of the failings of the uh, integrative complementary alternative healthcare movement has uh, been that we have not been attuned to the social conditions uh, that promote either illness or, uh, or, uh, or health. And I think that uh, we as a nation are in the process, hopefully, as we enter this election cycle, of paying more attention to that. Uh, we've got to do more than preach the virtues of acupuncture and homeopathy and diet and exercise because if people are burdened by not having uh, adequate nutrition, even a roof over their head, and so I think it's hypocritical for us uh, as professionals to talk mm. about these other things without doing what we can to help people get their basic needs met. And let's not kid ourselves, that's a huge issue in America currently. Getting your basic needs met still. Exactly. Those primary basic needs that have to do with whether or not somebody goes to bed hungry at night, for example, or whether they're able to uh, finish uh, high school. Uh, unless we pay attention to these things, these add-ons just aren't going to carry that much weight for those people. How is their healing power in dirt? Dirt's back, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look at... Uh, Children who are exposed to unhygienic conditions growing up, these kids turn out to have a more robust immune system uh, later in life uh, than children whose mothers throughout their upbringing try to keep them squeaky clean 24-7. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a lower incidence of childhood asthma if they're raised in dirty environments. They have a lower, lower incidence of infectious diseases and I thought it was the opposite. Well, I know. Everybody thinks this. The data do not say this, however. There's something now that has brought this to the fore. It's called the hygiene hypothesis. In a nutshell, it says that during our formative years, children need exposure to the bacteria, viruses, and uh, fungi that are in dirt, common dirt. It challenges the immune system to develop antibodies that will protect you the rest of your life. If you look at kids who are raised on farms, for example, they do much better in terms of immune function later in life than kids who are raised in hygienic environments. Uh, and so the recommendations now uh, from authorities who look at this field is that parents consider exposing their kids purposefully to dirty experiences, playing in sandboxes, for example, which has sort of gone out of style. Right. You know, making mud pies. Oh, uh, yeah. My favorite is just simply gardening. In garden soil, you have all the uh, microbes that one needs to boost the immune system in mm -hmm. these in very important ways. And so we're not talking about, uh, you know, not taking showers or anything like that. We're talking about deliberate exposure to the outdoors in, uh, in ways that are increasingly out of style, in particular in urban environments. Yeah, that's why you mentioned bugs, too, because people are, 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 are sort of talk about what you say in the book about bugs, where people associate bugs with you know, everything to do with being out there in nature and trying to remove yourself from that instead of connecting to it. 
Well, the most dramatic example of the uh, reappearance of uh, bugs, by which I mean just creepy crawlies mm -hmm. in general, is the use of leeches and maggots in modern surgery. There are situations now where doctors are deliberately applying maggots to infected wounds to clean them up in, in cases of diabetic ulcerations, in cases where wounds will not heal because the... Uh, is this the in places in the world where there's no antibiotics? Exactly. Third world countries uh, really are embracing this return of maggots and leeches in medical and surgical situations. So, is, uh, are you saying that's a good thing, Larry? Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Let me tell you something. If, <laughs> I know. If you when I was a, reading this, I'm thinking, are you not saying <laughs> bugs are a good thing? Bugs, yes. Bugs are good. Uh, if Larry, you, that's if a little you, out there for me. I got to tell you. Well, that. that's why that these, uh, you know, this is this is an outrageous idea. I'd be the first to admit. But that's one of the criteria I had for uh, selecting a. a topic for these mm -hmm, chapters. Mm -hmm. It had to be outrageous. Mm -hmm. It had to shake you up. And certainly the use of maggots, as is being done now in hospitals across the United States, shakes people up because we're repelled by that idea. It's been bred into us that we don't want anything to do with No, we don't. But Did you, you just say maggots are being used in hospitals across the United States? Oh, absolutely. I'll give you an example. Everybody's heard about uh, resistant, methicillin-resistant staff. I thought that's what you said. In yeah. our hospitals. You have seen they, them, these maggots? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Okay. There are situations where nothing else will work as well. They, maggots will not eat healthy tissue. They will debride dead and dying tissue in a, in a wound where nothing else will work. There are patients in this, these United States. Yes. That are, and so do oh, they know absolutely. that they're maggots? Oh, yes, they do. Uh, yeah, yeah, these yeah, usually yeah. are people who have flunked uh, therapy from almost everything else. They're at the end of the line. And I'll tell you, if you were facing either amputation of your foot from a diabetic ulcer or the recommendations that we apply some maggots and let them clean up the wound and let it heal naturally, I think most people would choose the maggot therapy rather than have their foot amputated. These are real-life examples. I, I think most people... Uh, uh, even though they were repelled by this, would make that choice in favor of this outrageous therapy. Well, you know, you're, you're talking about the power of uh, ordinary things and simple things. You know, I, all of us who have experienced hearing a beautiful song sometimes can often feel the words of that song and the melody and the harmony come together in such a way that make you feel healed. There's a chapter on music, and I present cases in there that yeah. are almost... Uh, uh, unthinkable. Uh, they border on the miraculous. For example, patients have been deeply comatose in neurological intensive care units from mm -hmm. injuries, and uh, uh, they respond uh, not at all to verbal uh, stimuli. And so, and in many of these cases, there are about a dozen now on record. Uh, Christmas comes around, the carolers come into the, the uh, neurological intensive care unit, and they sing these songs. And the person wakes up. There's something about the power of the Christmas carol in particular to stir memories that are really pleasant. Uh, and they're practically uh, miraculous. These patients will start trying to extubate themselves, taking out their breathing tube. In many cases, they start yanking out their IVs and they wake up. And in one case I talk about in the book, the guy wakes up from coma, mm -hmm. joins in singing Hark the herald angels Angel sing. sing. Yes. The nurses start weeping. They've never seen anything like this before. And what is it? Is it because of what the music represents or the actual um, 
you know, again, vibrational, tonal thing of, of the songs? What is it? The going idea is that in, even in coma, the auditory sense never goes totally away. So the song gets through to deep parts of the brain and triggers memories. Most of us... It's about memories. Is it not about Jesus? It's about memories. It's about... <laughs> well, we really don't know. But I think it has to do with exceedingly pleasant memories that we build up in store as children growing up. Okay. And those get triggered, and uh, that stimulus does something to awaken the person. This is so profound, Oprah, that I've uh, given standing instructions to my wife that I'm, if I'm ever in an auto accident, you carry it off to the neurological intensive care unit. You know, get me the best neurosurgeon you can, but get those carolers in there and have <laughs> them the in there. Um, Tell me this. What... Uh, heals you other than that nurse oh wow i uh i get a greatest my my greatest sense of healing from doing my work and knowing that uh i'm on the path mm. the right path and when i'm doing my work and standing up for what i think is right in spite of criticism and what people think that's the most healing thing uh, for me. Uh, it uh, it really is transformative. My life does not work well when I do not do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've developed a very sensitive awareness of when I depart from that path. And when it, I does don't. that happen as we get older, Larry, that we are more attuned? You know, as we get older, I find that uh, I have a different attitude toward this idea of happiness also. Mm -hmm. And I write about this in the book. There are a couple of ways of, of dealing with that. One is to get out of uh, sorts about the fact that you're unhappy and you're suffering, which just sort of intensifies it. The other is to back off and take the position that's advocated in mindfulness meditation, where mm -hmm. you just simply observe it. Thank you for bringing healing words to our listeners today. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. This book is The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.